Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1137, with guest Sam Van Hoot. Recorded Monday, April 27th, 2015. Hey, welcome back. It's another studio recording of .NET Rocks. How are you, Richard? We always love doing those. We do lots of them. Yep. Uh, we certainly have been doing a lot of them lately. What's, uh, what's on your mind these days? Uh, well, it's been a couple of weeks since the Nepal earthquake with the time shifting of the recording. But uh, for when we recorded this, it's the day after. And so, I mean, the good news is my friends who are Nepalese, the Sherpa I've worked with when I've gone there, we've located all of them. They're all alive. There are thousands that are not. Mm. And uh, the disaster response is underway. And my relationship with Humanitarian Toolbox has meant that I'm pretty heavily immersed in a lot of different elements around this. So Yeah, you've been uh, busy. It's, well, do the best you can. Try and save as many lives as you can and try and get the place back together. Um, is there is this a good time for people to help out via humanitarian toolbox? I mean, we, yeah, with time shifting in the, in play, we're always going to have a struggle with uh, what's going to be the case two weeks later. Um, HT is still in the formative stages. You know, we've been working on various projects for a while, but the software to operate in a disaster response environment is uh, very specific. It takes a lot of testing and some field trials and things. And we're not finished that process yet. I wouldn't want them to take the apps uh, into the field until they know they know how to use them because uh, time is of the essence right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, with that, uh, let's roll the music for Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Thursday, April 16th to be exact, there was an announcement on Scott Goo's blog for some new stuff on Azure, and it is general availability of Azure premium storage. Right. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Azure SSD, that's right, get this, up to 32 terabytes of storage per VM. 64,000 disk IOPS per VM. What's an IOP, Richard? Uh, instruction operation per second. All right. And how much activity does that generally? That's a read or a write to a disk. All right. A disk read or write. Yeah. And less than one millisecond read latency. So this is available for enterprise grade SLA and available for everyone to use. So if you have uh, an enterprise SLA, you've got it. Yep. Pretty awesome. Yeah, them definitely SSDs. <laughs> it's the only way you would be able to get that. Yeah, even in the cloud, SSDs rock. Absolutely. No Good stuff, man. Yeah, so there you go. And uh, just one more reason why Azure is getting more and more awesome every day. Who's talking to us, Richard? 
uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1104. And that's the one we did with Michelle Rubustamante when we talked a bit about Azure and the work that she was doing. And uh, Jeff Dalton had this great comment. He said, there was a comment made during the Docker discussion that made it sound like Docker containers running on the same server are not isolated from each other. I don't think that's true. Their isolation is definitely different. We've done other shows around Docker. We talked exactly about that because they're, they're not isolated at the BIOS level or isolated at the OS level. Yeah. I did not really understand that comment because from what I could see, Docker containers are essentially their own little virtual machines that are completely self-contained. In fact, I do not believe you can have one container talk to another without making some configuration changes. Yes, that's how I understand it too, yeah. sir. Uh, so if Michelle's reading these comments, maybe she can provide more information to help me understand. Uh, I would really point to a couple of the other Docker shows we've done recently, right. especially the one with Seth Locker. Yep. Who I thought really nailed that conversation. Great, great conversation. But uh, Ali in the uh, comments as well talked about pretty much the same thing, that the only way that these different uh, Docker containers talk to each other is through some TCP connection. That's the typical way yeah. to make it work. It works exactly the way you think it does, Jeff. Don't worry. Learn more. Do more. All of this stuff is awesome. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our guest today. Sam Van Hoot is CTO and product manager with Codit. Based in Belgium, Sam is a Microsoft integration MVP and frequently speaks at conferences. Next to that, he's also BizTalk virtual technology specialist and has extensive experience in building integrated enterprise, ESB, and SOA solutions. Because of the specialized focus on integration on Microsoft technology, Sam is part of Microsoft's connected systems and Azure advisory boards and is a Microsoft Azure insider as well as a Belgian Meet M-E-E-T member. Sam co-founded the BizTalk user group in Belgium, which you can find at btug.be, and is active crew member of the Azure user group, azug.be. While managing and architecting the online integration platform Codit Integration Cloud, Sam has been focusing on cloud integration with the Windows Azure platform the last years, focusing on the Microsoft Azure service bus and hybrid integration technology. Welcome, Sam. Hello, guys. Code it. Tell us about Code it. That sounds fun. What is it? Yeah, so um, I think we just celebrated our 15th uh, anniversary. So we started uh, around in 2000. And we, we, we are based in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 60 people. Um, and we have um, companies in Paris and Lisbon as well. Um, and our main, our main focus is really about integration. And that's only using Microsoft technologies. So if you look what we do, you know, we've been always been doing um, BizTalk server um, implementations. But of course, since I believe five years, um, mm-hmm. since the early Red Dog days, we were involved with um, the entire Azure um, developments. So we started building, um, as you mentioned, the coded integration cloud um, five years ago when service bus even didn't exist um, and so on. Um, and of course, we constantly um, yeah, looked at whatever was coming out uh, on the Azure platform and it's going, <laughs> it's going mad. It's going very fast and we constantly, you know, evolve the platform and make sure we, we take the, the latest uh, and greatest new features and uh, embed them into our platform. Yeah. Boy, it's been a long time since we've said the word BizTalk on .NET Rocks. No Richard, doubt. It's been, and where has BizTalk been hiding? Has it been alive and well in the enterprise and we just haven't been talking about it? 
Uh, yeah, so it's it's definitely a, it's been a rocky road. Um, the the last major version of Bistalk, um, as most people say, it, it will be probably 2006 R2. So that's that's probably 2008. Wow. And constantly new versions have been coming out, but with with minor additions, with some enhancements, no real um, breaking changes and so on. So that's definitely a good point towards um, stability. But of course, a lot of people were looking also for new um, features, new scenarios, and. Um, we have seen Bistalk um, Azure Services um, that was um, released, I believe, um, last year um, to general availability. Um, so that's an Bistalk um, platform as a service offering. But what seems to be um, happening there is that that service is still supported, but the main um, uh, integration offering on Azure will probably be now on the um, Azure App Service that was announced last month um, by Scott Guthrie and Bill Staples. So if you now look at the, the existing offerings around integration on, on Microsoft, it's definitely Bistock Server and the new version, I believe it's 2016, has been announced um, last week uh, or two weeks ago in, in London. Um, and looking at the um, cloud offering there, it's definitely the um, part of the logic apps and the API apps that were announced um, with the Azure App Service. Okay. So, so there's BizTalk Server and then there's BizTalk Services? Yeah. And I think you could say that BizTalk Services is the technology that is released but will not typically evolve because the offering that was supposed to be um, Bistock Services is now, you know, Azure App Service. And right. that contains much more than just the Bistock Services as an isolated platform. Now it's it's really an integrated platform with, you know, um, both web uh, apps, API apps, uh, you have the mobile apps, and all of that can get integrated and, and, and uh, yeah, modeled um, using the Logic apps. So a lot of us who listen to this show, and even us who host this show have mm -hmm. done a, a fair bit of integration on prem, you know, with, uh, back in the day, starting back in the day of XML web services and going all the way up to present. What's different about Azure integration than, you know, your typical, uh, integration solution, which might, you might be going across different businesses, across the internet, across private connections, that kind of thing. What's different mm -hmm. about Azure integration? Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, the, the patterns are still the same, but using different technologies and especially there's, there's new challenges with it. You see that, you know, security is definitely different. If, if, if an internal application behind the same firewall has to speak to another application, that's typically not a big deal. I mean, people trust each other or uh, applications are trusted um, behind the firewall. But if suddenly people start um, buying Salesforce, CRM online, you know, SaaS-based um, solutions that are residing outside of their data center, um, they still want to integrate that. I mean, if if uh, if CRM online closes an opportunity, you want to have that known into your on-prem SAP, for example. And that's a total different way of integrating. You will not have a direct connection from the multi-tenant um, CRM um, platform towards your on-prem secured um, SAP environment. And that's one thing. You, you have other things like latency that is different. So will you have synchronous request reply? Uh, probably you want to have things asynchronous. Um, the security models are all different. So it's no longer the typical Active Directory integrated security and so on. So there's much more 
um, complexity, much more things because you don't control all of the applications that are speaking to each other. Um, and of course, we see more recently, you mentioned XML web services. We see that they are still around. So even though um, everyone says WCF, um, you know, the SOAP implementation there, WCF is dead. Um, that's not, that's not really true. There's just things getting added on top of it. So right. you have, we still, we still have flat files. We still have XML web services. They exist and there's new things um, being added. For example, the um, REST APIs and so on. Sure. Well, and I've had customers, you try and tell me WCF is dead. I've got a bunch of customers out there like, you know, my whole business runs on the back of your dead technology. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm part. I'm part of an of an advisory board for a, a high school, and um, that I used to, you know, be a student in. Um, and I was in, in in one of the discussions, like on their curriculum, what should people learn? And one of the things they said, okay, we we don't do um, WCF anymore. We go for ASP.NET Web API. I said that totally makes sense. But do you still, you know, teach those students about SOAP and what it is? Because whenever they leave your uh, high school, um, probably ninety five percent of services that they will find in the enterprise or still soap if, if you're lucky right it's not all uh, rev based and especially not in the enterprise and in the the lob systems and and we, people should not forget about soap and um, even though of course for mobile applications and for for the pure um sauce applications rest definitely makes more sense and um, but soap is still around yeah yeah i find it falls into that category of things that you would learn on the job right you know hey the mm-hmm. the guy who ran our soap infrastructure moved on to another company and you know we can't find anybody to replace him because nobody knows this stuff anymore so here watch these videos, read these books and get up to speed on it. You know, is that, is that what you yeah. see? Yeah, exactly. That, that totally makes sense. And, and we see that, you know, rest is supposed to be lightweight and, and, you know, it should be decoupled from the contract and the transport and things like that. But now you see other things coming up. For example, there's uh waddle, there's Ramel, there's swagger, you know, mm-hmm. people are still trying to now, um, yeah, define the contracts and define and describe the operations. So we see that things that were left out are now also finding their way into, um, into rest, uh, restful services, which makes sense in my opinion. I, I don't see it as a bad uh, thing. Yeah. We, we hear a lot on .NET rocks about how difficult it is to, uh, convince companies to, you know, move into the cloud and to, to get their data into the cloud. And I'm just wondering what, um, what kinds of companies do you work with that are taking that step and are moving stuff in? Mm-hmm. But we work for a lot of different companies. We have um, government organizations. We have um, uh, manufacturing companies, uh, logistics, insurance. Mm-hmm. And of course, one industry is typically more uh, open towards cloud than the other. Um, we are having... Uh, government customers looking into it, mostly for dev test scenarios. Mm. Um, because that's the easy part. You don't have a lot of, you know, um, rules to follow there. Um, but then looking at people running their um, production workloads, um, we have typically the customers in retail, um, very open for that. We have a customer in New Zealand who is in the uh, food industry. Mm. Um, we have one in transport and logistics because 
what we see the nature of those companies is that they are typically already using right. um, SaaS applications. They are already they do for 20, 30 years EDI, so that's B two B communication sure. with existing partners, and that goes through the cloud, that goes through you know trusted vendors that they have. So these customers can easily take that step and, and they understand that it's it's a matter of outsourcing and, and sticking to their um, core business and they outsource the yeah, integration and, and, and infrastructure to um, cloud vendors and, and, and vendors like us. Yeah. yeah, so B2B, obvious one there, and forward-facing, customer-facing uh, stuff as well, right? Anybody who's got exactly. a, a website that, you know, has, has mm-hmm. that data come from a lot of different places, I imagine. But yep. then, then you get, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of them that are going kicking and screaming, of course. Um, for those, for those of your, you know, customers who are doing this, what are the challenges that you see with, with integrating these systems? Is it still the same old, you know, you've got X and I've got Y and you know, what, what I mean when I say, give me an XML file might be different than what you give me, et cetera. Yeah, that doesn't go away because that's not necessarily related to the technology. It, it's more of a yeah testing approach and, and standardization. And if you're familiar with EDI, and I hope for you 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 aren't, but um, it's not the most. Um, <laughs> the, the Did you most, say hopefully uh, you aren't? Is that what that. you said? That's what he said. <laughs> exactly, because it's not the most interesting standard. I mean. I've I've never seen so much dialects of one standard. Oh, as, dude, as HL seven in the healthcare industry—they're they're both horrible. Yeah, yeah, that comes very close indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. So, but those things—they they are a standard, but every company indeed has their own dialect. Anti-standard. And their own yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I did work for uh, was it? I think it was a parts manufacturer that had to feed parts to GM, and the GM had their specific set of EDI rules and their specific. This is before the internet, so their specific service that you had to sign up to, and it was expensive, or you could not sell parts to them. It was impossible. There was no mm. other way. Exactly. And the, the the thing you mentioned now is really something that we see we see smaller customers that are selling to those bigger vendors, uh, right. to those bigger companies, and they have to follow or they are out of business. And that's a good point. That's a good trigger for cloud. They don't want to um, invest into a, you know, what's it called? 30 um, K dollar um, license for Bistalk. They want to start small because it's probably their, you know, their first step in the integration they take. And right. that's really where we can see that, you know, cloud and Azure is, is helping them because we can start very small with that first integration, um, connecting it to their local system. It might be, they might have a very simple landscape. They might have one system for, for warehousing and one for the ERP and they can, they can get started. And that's really, you know, uh, we see a lot of those companies. Now taking their first integration steps. It's not only the, the big, um, enterprise customers anymore. Right. Well, and, and obviously, I mean, I remember when BizTalk was new and EDI was the main thing and it was private networking connections primarily. And you think all this stuff would just go away when the internet and XML made it all quote unquote easy. <laughs> I love the way you say that. <laughs> the Easy. Is, nothing goes away. Right. We still have those flat files. We still have an AS400 or, or mainframe connection. But right. we now also have XML and we will have REST and whatever that might be coming. So nothing so it, goes away. In a lot of ways, it's just gotten more complicated by introducing these new things. Yeah, because... As I said, nothing goes away. You still have those old applications that still need to be integrated. The good thing is that using such an integration layer in the cloud or on-prem doesn't matter. 
that helps you to make that bridge every now and then. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug-crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. And I mean, I'm looking here at, there's BizTalk, the on-premise server, which it looks like they still sell. Haven't seen one in a while, but yeah. Then there's the BizTalk services in Azure, and then they recently announced the whole app fabric part. So... We should be using app services. Like that's the, if you're going to start something today, you would mm -hmm. use Azure app services. Um, it really depends because today app service is a very first preview version. Right. Um, and I, w I'm not daring to say that it would be something that I would use for a mission critical integration. Our, I mean, point. enterprises tend to be conservative. This is a bit too leading edge for a lot of enterprises. Exactly. So what, and, and, and for me, to be honest, it's still not clear if the logic apps, because we've been involved um, as preview partners since um, last December. So close to a half year, we're playing with this thing and it's very promising, but there's still a lot of things that, um, that have to be changed if. Right. The logic apps and, and the, 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 um, app service is intended to become a, a mission critical enterprise ready integration platform. I'm not saying that the intention for now, it could be perfectly possible that logic apps or our app services intended to, to allow and to democratize uh, integration for typical lightweight integration things right. more point to point. And that, that is definitely a, a, a good sell. So if, if, if a small customer starts with some lightweight integration, I'm definitely there to say that, um, app service will, will help that customer. If one of our larger customers that has, um, thousands of mappings and, and a lot of different business partners, I don't want to put that customer on, on the service uh, yet, but that can change. That's, that's time um, that will tell, of course. But at the same time, like Carl alluded to this as well, right? Enterprises often have a problem with going into the cloud, mostly because of their data. Like they want to keep their data on-prem. This is an integration solution. If I'm a small guy wanting to sell stuff to GM, the idea that I wouldn't have to buy a BizTalk server, that I could actually use BizTalk services in the cloud just as my bridge from my on-prem data through messaging, through the service, to the GM site where they're on-prem data, that sounds, is that a reasonable scenario? Because that sounds like really compelling to pay per transaction for that rather than have to buy all the infrastructure. And when stuff doesn't have to persist in the cloud. And nothing persists. Right. Mm -hmm. but that definitely makes sense. And, and you can enable or disable persistence. So that, that's up to you. So for those customers, indeed, and that's what I call lightweight integration. That's not, um, some, some project that you have to, you know, do some analysis of three months and, and define everything and start with loose coupling and da, 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 da. So if you have a big top down architectural approach, as a lot of our enterprise customers do, 
I'm not there to say app service is a thing. If you're indeed that smaller customer that has to integrate with three, four um, uh, other partners, why not? And especially yeah. if you're if you're having um, applications uh, in your data center or you use applications like Office 365, Salesforce, and so on, but you can do a lot of things um, yourself. You know, if you have a small IT department, they will be able to use those out of the box connectivity um, towards a lot of the um, SaaS players um, to to set up small and lightweight integration things. Um, nice. If, 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 if the business now comes to um, the IT and asks uh, if something, you know, on Salesforce happens, I want to get an email and or maybe a text message or, you know, whatever. It sometimes takes quite a bit of time before that gets into production because of either priorities or because of um, the big, um, you know, architectural top-down approach that a lot of companies are using. Even for those small lightweight things, and and there it definitely makes sense to to give the power to um, the the some guys with the good functional knowledge um, to make these um, types of, of of workflows themselves as well. Right and. and- and this is exactly what uh, Scott Hunter described when we were talking about the whole logic apps is those kinds of integration pieces between two devices. That's ex- perfect for that. Although, again, brand new tech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm fully in line. So the and what, what I'm also looking forward to is um, whenever partners like us um, will be able to push and their API apps or microservices as they used to be um, called, then we will be able to push these things to the cloud, to the to the public gallery, because that will even make um, more and more out-of-the-box connectivity possible. And it also helps partners like um, us and, 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 you know, all those other partners to um, monetize uh, a lot of the existing IP uh, in, a, in a very, you know, um, easy way. Because right. Enterprise customers, customers might now start using um, API apps, microservices from us without having a direct contract and, and a real sales cycle. It might be just that they, they, they trust um, that brand and they will um, start using that connector. And that's, that's definitely a whole new um, approach for a lot of people. And maybe we need to get into some of these terms because I've run into them before, but a connector is not exactly like an eighth inch audio jack, right? This is a piece <laughs> of software. <laughs> exactly. Connector is um, an API app, and an API app used to be called a microservice. So it's just a lightweight um, uh, API. Sort of an um, adapter in the cloud, right? Yeah. So you have a lot of adapters, Office 365, Twilio, Twitter, uh, but also the what we call protocol adapters. You could have a file adapter that connects to an on-prem file. Uh, you have service bus queue adapters and so on. So there's a lot of those adapters um, or connectors or API apps. You know, it's all the same um, things. A connector is typically something that connects to a system. You could have an API app um, that just, for example, calculates um, uh, some some rule, for example. That's not a connector. So a connector is something that connects to other systems. Right. And you still have um, non-connector API apps that are just um, calculating and, and exposing operations there. Yeah. Well, and one of the... My experience dealing with folks around BizTalk is that a lot of developers sort of look at it and go, I can write this. Mm-hmm. Like, th- you're just talking about, I need to talk from this machine to that machine and that machine spitting out FTP into a file share. So I'll just, you know, write a watcher, pick up the file and do the processing. I'm like, why do we need to spend $50,000? Oh, yeah. I've had those conversations too, Richard. They, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they're, it's easy. 
It's easy. I don't know. You're, I think you know the answer too. It's easy to do one or two, but try managing a boatload of those things. Exactly. And, and that's the easy part. That's the happy part. And, and that, that, that really won't take you a lot of time to have that file watcher pick up and so on. But then you want to scale. Then you want, if something fails, you want to have exception management. You want to have a good monitoring log, um, alerting systems, things like that. You know, and what policies, happens? Policies that go across all of those things rather than one at a time. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I don't want, you know, we have all those patterns for throttling. You, so BizTalk is multi-threading, but sometimes the backend system cannot follow. So BizTalk can just throttle things and, and slow down so that the backend system doesn't drown with all the messages you send to it. If you have to start building all these things yourself, then it takes uh, a little bit of more time, right? So, Well, the more time I spend writing software, the more time I come to appreciate there is no simple code. <laughs> it's a myth. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The code, you know, the code that works great. This stuff nobody's using. It works awesome. As soon as they start really using your code, it's complicated. There's a lot to it. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to call this .NET 2003 XML web service from my Java Bean and check out the XML. And hey, what the fuck is a data set? <laughs> <laughs> you want to bleep that you better bleep that <laughs> but that was the correct comment <laughs> and how do i get rid of it oh i don't want to know the answer to that <sighs> actually it's time to give away a music to code by cd and blu-ray dvd which has just been finished nice yep to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club but first Oh my God, where do I start with music to code by? It's three 25 minute quiet and groovy instrumentals, Pomodoro sized, that are designed to get you into a state of flow and keep you there. 60 to 80 beats per minute lets those alpha waves flow. And, uh, man, people are just, it, the, I used to, I oh, used three, to say, dude, the, I thought you're up to five now. I still, I still, I used to say the phone is ringing off the wall, but, right. but what I'm now I'm saying is that the orders just keep coming in. People oh, are loving great. this thing, man. People just keep buying this. So see what all the fuss is about. .NET rocks fans are being more productive with music to code by. Listen to some samples and check it out at mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Anton J. Rasmussen. Uh, congratulations, Anton. Golf clap for you. Yeah, they are. Oh, there the clappers. Found him. Yep. Okay, back under the desk with you. And uh, Anton just won the Music to Code by package. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And uh, every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to join to win. So go do it. We also like to ask our guests, Sam, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I'm uh, my wife will uh, confirm, but I'm buying way too much of gadgets and, and, and stuff that actually What is I don't this need. too much you speak of? <laughs> That's in her uh, terms, <laughs> but it's, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, way too much and if I could spend it, I would probably spend it on home automation because it's a little bit of a side project I have. So we're looking into IoT, so Internet of Things. 
Uh, and I'm buying way too much of those gadgets. Um, I, I want to monitor my mailbox. I want to have the garden automated. I want to have the, the watering of the plants. I want to see the level of the water tank uh, automated. Not because I need it, just because I like it and because I, <laughs> I think it's fun to do. It's all about so, the awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that's I, uh, probably yeah, a lot of those things I would spend my money on. That's pretty cool. I did a big dent in the five grand uh, switching the house over to Nest thermostats, but unfortunately, mm -hmm. I need six of them because each bedroom has its own thermostat. Uh, on the other side, I have six more IP addresses consumed on my network. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have? Your own class C for your house there? I'm going to, yeah, I'm thinking about <laughs> breaking the network into the house network and the computer network just because there's so many IPs going everywhere. You do have a class C, don't you? Uh, no, no, I think I have a half a dozen fixed IPs oh, wow. that are shared out depending on the service that we're calling out to. That's crazy. But yeah, I'm all in for the home automation stuff there, Sam. It's, it's as much as you want to spend. It's like a rabbit hole. It just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> Yeah, I had the same thing as well. I have a Cisco um, device that used to be supported by Azure VPN. Um, and I bought that one. And I forgot to to see that, you know, the addition that I bought had a limit for, I think, 50 IP addresses or something. And suddenly I was adding a new gadget. And I had like, you cannot connect. And I, I searched quite a bit of time. And mm -hmm. it ended up that it didn't get an IP address because of my limit. <laughs> so that hurts uh, 50 even more. 50 is just yeah. not enough. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Exactly. And I I seem to be my the DHC pool at home runs out anytime I have a party at the house because everybody <laughs> shows up with at least one IP address if not two. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and you your LED lights. That's something I really want to talk to you about because I think it's about time for the studio. The LED lighting, yeah, yeah. that's a that's a thing. And uh, getting it done right. I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy with what's happened here, but there's there's more to do. Uh, it's an endless process, but making our homes more amazing. I'm with you, Sam. I think this is this is the wave of the future. We need to move yep. more of it. Exactly. <laughs> and five thousand dollars is just a down payment. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't take long, though. Yeah, true enough. All right, I want to dive back into this thing, and I'm going to pull out a buzzword, and we can all cringe when I'm finished. Are you ready? <laughs> Enterprise sure. service bus. Mm. I knew. I knew. Yeah. You knew. You knew I was no. going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I built a couple. It's not about the technology. It's about the arc. Oh, you tell a story, Sam. Like this, what? It, because it felt like back in the day when BizTalk started using this term, it's like they were trying to find a home. Not that they were the best solution for it, but it's like, what do we need to be to be successful? Let's be an enterprise service bus. That's so true. So the product itself didn't change, but suddenly it became an enterprise service bus indeed. So, right. uh, and the way Microsoft played it back then was for us, because every vendor had uh, its own definition for an ESB, probably mostly based on the existing products they have, yep. uh, of course. So for Microsoft, they said it for us, an ESB is a set of capabilities. So it has to be transformation. It has to be adaptation and uh, the whole um, yada yada. Um, there's a lot of, you know, theories about ESB, like it should be with all discovery, it should be, you know, self-documented one endpoint, you know. So one of the things that uh, Clemens Fosters, who is now uh, managing the IoT things, um, wrote was the uh, ESB Utopia, 
And it was indeed that, you know, he was saying that ESB is mostly an architectural style that is necess not necessarily implemented in a lot of companies um, in the way it's described. And I agree with that. I mean, if you really look at the, 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 the big definition, um, I don't see a lot of existing companies um, having that full-blown ESB. Um, but a lot of those concepts still um, survive and survived. Mm -hmm. uh, we have small customers who come up and they say, oh, we need an ESB. And we always make the transformation from, yeah, okay, ESB, let's see what your definition of an ESB is. And we mostly come down to, yeah, we want to have messaging, we want to have loose coupling, we want to make sure that we are agile in, you know, um, transforming our company. Um, that's the most important things. All the right. things with self, um, self-discovery, um, that's not necessarily part of it. Yeah. Um, we also have, yeah, the, the, the customer that probably has, the biggest um, um, ESB-like implementation at our um, customer base is not even using uh, a lot of web services. Mm. And that's what we said. You can have all those ESB concepts and, and, and the architecture of that. You can have that um, using whatever protocol you like. And they even use a lot of files. So why not? Yeah, right. Sure. Well, and the best thing I've heard explained as far as what a real, where does it really, we really mean service bus is, an interoperability problem, like we've got a bunch of Java guys building great Java code for this part of the business, say it's financial services, and we've got a bunch of .yet guys that have been building some great code, uh, say it's over here in retail, and mm -hmm. they need to interoperate. And you can use Genie, you know, which actually is really fast and efficient, because when you try to do it with SOAP messages and WS Star, it got really fat and slow. But when you're doing those direct calls like that, anytime anybody makes a change, it breaks. Mm -hmm, right. And then when you, and so we have to synchronize our changes. And, and if another team gets involved, the, you get this, uh, you know, N over N plus minus one problem where every additional person makes the problem four times harder. And so as a, as a, a different team gets involved, now they make a change that breaks those two guys. So now they both need to make changes and then suddenly nothing, nothing gets done. And so just uncoupling the code enough so that each team can be productive, can rev on their own cycle, guarantee that the code they're depending on doesn't break, but that new code can be made available. That, to me, seems to be the powerful part of a bus. Exactly. It's all about the, the, the loose coupling, the decoupling. But you should only do that if it makes sense. If, if you have two systems and, and you know that not a lot of things will change, it's probably not the time to start thinking with a big ESB because it might only complicate things. So it, it's always the same thing. Only use um, those architectural patterns whenever they are needed and whenever you see the the values um, and, and, and the problem points um, applicable to your situation. And that's that's definitely important with everything. Yeah, having as many disconnected, when you have many different moving parts that need to be changed on their own and not have dependencies, there's just really no other way. But I guess now we get back to the real question, which is, does BizTalk have a role in that? Yeah, def definitely. BizTalk has all those capabilities um, for decoupling, for making sure that if your backend system is using JMS and you want to expose things over REST, you can just do that. Um, and, and you can decouple the implementation from the real um, connectivity towards your systems. So having five different partners sending to the same backend system, to the same um, thing in their own format, it's just a matter of configuration. And that makes things much easier than yeah, writing it yourself uh, in .NET or Java or whatever. Right.
and a, and a good set of tools in the ESB space. There's no ESB in a box where all I do is walk in, press this button, and ha, huh, we're enterprise service bus. But there is tooling that makes it easier to not make mistakes, to maintain that decoupling, to allow, you know, now you get into sort of the philosophical debates around enterprise service bus, which is, do I revise APIs, but only add to them with optional parameters so that old callers can still use it without having to update? Or do I keep an old version of the service and make a V2 of the service and a V3 of the service and never shut anything off? Like, there's a few different ways to go at this. Mm -hmm. And there's not there's not one single truth, in my opinion. So we have customers with who are looking into API management or uh, SOA governance, whatever you, you put right. a name to it. And we have customers that say, okay, we want to have every version, you know, backwards compatible, as you said, optional attributes, only extend, not remove, and so on. Right. Where we have other customers that say, no, we want to have uh, the option to have, you know, real breaking changes. But then they still want to know who's calling that old version. Yes. And for that, it's important to have something in the middle that can can show you exactly who's calling, how many times. Um, I, I was talking last week with a customer in, in, in the Netherlands, and we were having that discussion. And he said, the only way we can know if a certain version of a service is called is just by, you know, shutting down the service and seeing who's calling us. Yeah, and that's see of who course screams. Like, exactly. Who's screaming? Who's who's breaking? And, and that's yeah, not what you, want, what you want to have. Yeah. I used uh, uh, preemptive analytics to instrument mm -hmm. service calls to try and figure out who was and and if an old service was being used. And so, I, but I we literally talked about having to wait a year because in many cases it would take you know somebody might only call this thing once a year. Right. So how long do you have, you know to ensure that a service is finished being used? Mm -hmm. The, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, and if the consumers of your service are uh, internal to your organization, it's easier. But if you're looking at, you know, exposing your data as as a customer towards, you know, over an API towards other um, to the open ecosystem, you even don't know your consumers. And that's that's even becoming a, more of a problem. And there we can see things like Twitter, who has their V1 and V2, you know, side by side. Um, and, and they probably have to keep it up for a long time and make a lot of noise whenever they would, you know, start um, or stop um, supporting a specific version and so on. Yeah. What kind of cost savings can we look forward to by moving to a, a, an Azure-based integration solution? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the most important thing is the, the fact that you can start small and you can really grow with your business. Um, if you look at Bistalk and you have just a smaller project, um, even if you start with a, with a standard version of Bistalk, you, you're, you know, quickly you have 20k or something, um, that you have to spend. Uh, and then you don't have anything. It's not, as you said, that you have the ESB and you turn it on and it works. No, you still have to start building your um, integrations on top of that. Um, so if you look now at Azure, of course, you still have to build the things, but you can start with a matter of clicks and looking at the, the logic apps. Yeah, a lot of them can run in a free mode even. Um, of course, you have a lot of limitations. They can only run once an hour or something um, and so on. So if you want to scale, you want to have things um, running uh, on demand and so on, you have to uh, go to a, a different um, level of um, the app service to standard or um, even enterprise. 
but the good thing is that you can you can really tune yourself and the different things if you have a mission critical um workflow you can say that that workflow has to auto scale based on the load and so on so you can really grow um with that specific uh, workflow and it could be that you have lightweight integrations that you want to run in a free mode and that's a very big uh, advantage uh, compared to 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 the previous things you can really scale uh, on workflow level, on your API level. And that's a big difference. The downside or the risk now is that it becomes very difficult to predict the amount of, um, cost you will have. You can, you can see that it will probably be much uh, smaller than it is, um, with the traditional approach. But there's a lot of moving parts in, in setting up uh, an integrated solution there. So you have your API apps, the websites, if you want. You have your logic apps, you have the number of actions and so on. So there's a lot of uh, um, parameters to, de to determine, to define the price. And that's the big um, thing. And it's also not easy to configure. So you will have a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of issues, uh, where maybe a developer decides that it should be the, the uh, premium skew where maybe the standard skew would have been enough and that might result in, in, in some specific costs. Um, so that's definitely something we have to look, uh, look into. So what you're saying is hire a company like yours. <laughs> Yeah, of course. We try to uh, always assist um, partners and comp uh, companies. And you know, that's a that. fair yeah. that's a fair response because you know this stuff isn't isn't always easy, and it's the, the experienced people who know what to what to avoid and what to uh, engage. Well, we always there's a French word that says métier, so it means that you need a lot of experience with integration. It's not just the technology; it's really about you know knowing how to decouple, knowing that. Even if it works, you have to think about exception handling, about all these extra things that are added with it, because integration just works normally. But if it doesn't work, everyone should be able to to know why, to find the root cause. And if something doesn't uh, doesn't work, a lot of times they say it's about yeah, the integration layer doesn't work. But most of the time, you just have to look into the logs, look into the details, and say no, it's not us. It's you or him or um, the other guy, because it's often related to data quality it's often related to a system that is not available and things like that but it's all the only place to find out and to, to you know to point and find the, the root cause is a lot of times just the uh, integration layer and these are architectural things like most organizations will only do this once or twice in several years you, you you're not going to get good at it you don't really need to it's worth having uh, a service provider. I mean, it's certainly me as a consultant. I've done the same thing. You come in to help them with the plan and, and get it organized. And then once it's up and running, there's not a lot for the architect to do anymore. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we have customers since, uh, since the beginning. So 15 years now, and we are still adding, adding services, but it's just adding new flows, new business um, processes. It's it's a matter of, you know, the factory is there, the, the platform is there, and then it's just automation. And that's that's the that's the good part that that's where you really get the agility. It's not just, you know, setting up um, an integration layer for one project. It's really, you know, seeing that as a strategic part for your uh, company and, and adding things um, for the future and, and making your company yeah building on that. What's on your wish list? What do you wish was different or better? Or just there at all in the tool set? 
Um, I'm really hoping to get, you know, um, a better integration story around, you know, the whole ALM part. So uh, I'm now speaking about the Azure App Service. Okay. Um, I really see that the, the runtime is there, but, um, it's all based in the browser, for example. So you have to use the um, browser and, I'm, I'm also looking forward to see things in, in Visual Studio integrated so that we can still check in. We can version, we can build, do build automation and all of that out of the box mm -hmm. because that's important for uh, enterprise things. Um, looking towards Bistalk server. Um, I really hope that Bistalk server, um, will be supported, um, in Azure, um, virtual machines as well. Um, for production scenarios because now there's limitation um it's mostly on the sql level um you cannot have um what's it called always on sql always on with bistol combined so you have to fall back on clustering and that doesn't seem to be supported officially yet um we're still looking forward to see an announcement there and that would definitely make things uh, easier you could say okay we have cloud customers that want to have lightweight integration and then we go for Azure App Service. Uh, but if they want to start today with some more strategic and, and, and more heavy integration work, then you could have your Bistalk server um, running on your um, Azure virtual machines. And that would be the, yeah, then we have all the choices we want to have. You know, you mentioned Clemens Vasters a while back. And he and I know he's the IoT guy now, but he was also the service bus guy, which was the Azure service bus where did that end up in this mix? Yeah, so the the you know Azure Service Bus and Enterprise Service Bus um, are two totally different things. Um, right. Service Bus used to be start uh, was starting with the relay, so that was exposing services, typically WCF services, to the outside world using firewall friendly technologies. Right. Um, but if if we see what what was um, added um, to that was definitely the messaging things and. Um, I'm a big fan of everything around async messaging, um, you know, decoupling between systems. So pops up all of these capabilities were added to Azure Service Bus. Yeah. So the, the platform that we've built, um, integration cloud was building totally on top of that. So we have all the pops up, um, mechanisms. Um, we do that, um, based on, on, on service bus. And if you now look at the, the IoT projects we are uh, implementing, yeah, of course, there we see uh, event hubs as, as, you know, a big player, um, for, for those projects. So we, we ingest everything through event hubs. The good thing is it's, um, it's, uh, interoperable. So you have AMQP, you have HTTP and you have the out of the box thing. Uh, net and then you, you have out of the box integration with Azure Stream Analytics. You can build your um, you, you can have all these different consumers on the same um, set of telemetry data and all of that. So that's really you know I, I would say that Service Bus is built for um, high volume, um, typically messaging, um, and it's not just for integration. Integration can use it as transport and as decoupling mechanisms, um, but you know, app service or Bristock are doing um, the real message processing, processing itself. They will do right. routing based on message content. They will do transformation, and they will really work with the data. Message bus just um, transforms, uh, um, transports the data. 
Yeah, it feels like this. Should, these should all come together as one platform service. You know, like I, I really don't want to have to buy a server for it. I'd rather light it up as much as much as I need and pay for it by the transaction. It just seems confusing to have so many different things sort of around the periphery of this overall goal of of message handling. I agree, but I also understand that um, people want to use service bus just in their .NET custom applications without right. having to deal with all the other um, complexity of integration. So what I'm hoping is that, um, you know, the integration layer, layer um, would and the integration products would have even more out-of-the-box connectivity with service bus and use it as an underlying pattern. Right. Um, if you, and then that's that's the most important thing. And, and they are doing a lot of things there. If you look at the hybrid connectivity that we have from the app service towards the on-prem thing, all of that is using um, service bus behind the scenes. So you, you still want to have that choice, I believe, um, between yeah, full integration or just the messaging and the async uh, decoupling. Hey, Sam, have you checked out uh, end service bus Udi Dahan's work there yeah so end service bus um, provides you more of an abstraction from the underlying technology so you can use end service bus with for example service bus but also with um, MSMQ and a lot of other um, queuing tech technologies so mm -hmm. that's definitely a very nice um, yeah, decoupling there from the, the underlying messaging and I would say it's perfectly um, suited for building custom uh, applications that require um, messaging and pops up. Yeah. Um, we, I'm working with Yves Hulieven, who's a Belgian Azure MVP. Uh, he's also part of the um, end service bus team, and he really uses that as well um, in a lot of his uh, projects. Nice. Yeah, we had an opportunity to go to their conference and, and meet a bunch of folks that are being really successful with, uh, with the tool. Uh, mm -hmm gluing together complicated systems like it's every every scenario you dig into with these kinds of projects you sort of sit back and go whoa i can see that's hard <laughs> that takes a lot to mm -hmm. make that work and uh that show was uh, uh, we started with the sort of the history of enterprise service bus and why you need it and how the need came up and uh and how it evolved i thought that was a really nice uh uh, a look back, you know, for anybody who who's just getting into this field. Show 1055, that was. The Future of the Service Bus at NSB Conf. From uh, October last year, 2014. So, Sam, what's on your to-do list? What's next for you? So, my thing is that I'm really working on an IoT project. It's the... Integration is becoming much more than just a EAI or B2B. Um, so we have API management started up last year and that's, that's successful. And now we have, um, two IoT projects. So my thing is really, um, focusing on, on that, working out the architecture, the offering that we provide there. Um, and seeing what Microsoft will announce in the coming weeks, because there's a lot of conferences coming up and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, a lot of different announcements are expected, I assume. Um, and there's a lot of different, you know, technologies. We have the um, Azure um, Fabric Service. We have the App Service. We have IoT Suite. All of these mm -hmm. things have been announced briefly. Um, I'm hoping to see more details um, coming out there. Um, and that's definitely the, the things that are, you know, on my agenda now. Definitely cool. And uh, IoT, definitely uh, a service-oriented design there 
Yeah, we're going to see a lot of that stuff in the future, I'm sure. Yeah, the thing the thing that we see with IoT is that we believe that with Microsoft it will be possible to build an open platform um, and and to have you know a lot of intelligence in the cloud. What right. we are in competition with some customers or some vendors that have closed systems, so they have the sensors, they have the um, the implementation in the cloud, and they have the data. That's not the approach we want to take. We say okay. We can offer you some out-of-the-box sensors using um, some of our partners, mm-hmm. but you can use whatever sensor you want to have. You can write your sensors. We don't mind. Yeah. We will integrate it, and then we have all the data, and we will expose that data using whatever technology you want. Yeah. Because and it's your data, and we want to work together with you on that data, and that's that's important. Having an open cloud, having an open platform, and not a closed proprietary thing. Agreed. And the story of IoT is really about what happens once you have the data. I mean, collecting the data is one thing, but uh, yeah. it's important. But it's the the less uh, the, the 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 less difficult of the two. What that's the commodity part, data? yeah. The commodity thing is indeed storing the data. The, the, the real intelligence will be from, you know, yeah. finding patterns, right. building building intelligence, and then using that to predict things. And whenever we have that, that's where the real uh, value will come out. That's yeah. it. All right, Sam, it's been great talking to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. We So did we. And we'll see you mm-hmm. next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm